After taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him, and on the third day He will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, biblical scholars are quite unanimous in how they structure the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, there is a major shift in the book. Now, it's been a long time since we looked at Luke 9, 51. So just to refresh your memory, it reads, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. So this shift in the book is important because Jesus goes from proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing people of diseases and casting out demons and He does this in and around Galilee and it's time for Him to fulfill His primary purpose for coming and that is to head to Jerusalem to Calvary's cross. So this is a pivotal point in the Gospel back in Luke 9.51 because the journey has begun for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. It's going to be the Passover week and He is going to be the sacrificial Lamb who will die for the sins of God's people. And what Jesus has done along the way is He has instructed His disciples about what is going to take place. He is going to suffer. He is going to die. He is going to rise. These twelve are given insider information about God's plan to save the world. There is no plan B. This is what God is doing. And in our text this afternoon, Jesus, for the third time, explains what soon must take place. He will be examined and rejected by the Jews. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. And He will be crucified. And this will all be in fulfillment of the Scriptures. But each time Jesus reveals this plan, there is confusion. Jesus describes what will happen three times, and all three times the disciples cannot receive it. And the reason is because the disciples have different expectations. And I thought what I would do this afternoon is help us to understand the source of their confusion. I mean, they're, they're with Jesus for three years. They're hanging on His every word. He's explaining to them the mechanics of the kingdom and what the sons of the kingdom look like and the parables and all of the rest. And yet it's this one part of His direct teaching that they has them scratching their heads every single time. And the reason they had such a hard time with this is because there were Old Testament texts that they were familiar with. 
that talked about the Messiah coming and reigning from Jerusalem. They had all of these verses in their minds. They had grown up going to the synagogue and hearing the teaching about the Messiah that was to come. And it was this great city of Jerusalem, this holy city from which He would reign and rule over the nations. And when Jesus talks about going to Jerusalem, they start getting excited. And then when Jesus talks about going and suffering and dying, they have no category for that. So, this is the verse we're going to springboard off of, and we are going to look at some Old Testament texts. But in verse 31 again, Jesus takes the twelve and says to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Son of Man, of course, is a messianic title. They're going to Jerusalem. The disciples are getting excited. So far, so good. Jerusalem, Son of Man, prophets. Got it. Now, their expectation is Jesus would enter Jerusalem. He would be received by the people. He would be hailed as their king. He would take up his throne. And along with these 12 men, he would rule and reign over Israel, even to the ends of the earth. Now, where did they get this idea? Well, we could go back as far as Genesis 3.15, where God gives the first messianic promise that he is going to send the seed of the woman, which is a savior, to crush the seed of the serpent. The head of the serpent, I should say. Or I could take you back to Genesis and the promises given to Abraham that there is going to be a seed of Abraham, which is referring to one person who is going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Or I could take you to Genesis 48 where there is a prophecy that the Messiah is going to come through the line of Judah and God was going to raise up a king and his scepter would not depart from that line and he would reign forever so i could take you all the way back to the beginning and we could look at all kinds of scriptures from the torah but jesus talks about the prophets here and so i'm going to stick with the prophets and i'm going to include the psalms because david is called a prophet in hebrews 11 and so we are going to look at a few psalms we are going to look at some prophets and i want us to see what the disciples were expecting. So Psalm 2, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just to get you up to speed, it's about the nations who are opposing God and the way God's going to deal with the nations in rebellion against Him is He's going to send His Son. And He says in verse 6 of Psalm 2, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. Now just pause for a second. Zion in the Old Testament mindset is Jerusalem. So in the New Testament, we have a con concept of Zion, which is God's heavenly Jerusalem that's coming down someday. But the Old Testament reader sees Zion and thinks Jerusalem. So whenever you see Zion, I want you to think Jerusalem. 
He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So God is sending his Messiah into the world to rule the kings of the earth so that everyone and everything is brought in subjection to God and he's going to do it from Jerusalem. So as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem with his disciples, they're looking forward to this. Let's go, Jesus. In fact, hey, can we be on your right hand and on your left when this happens? Psalm 102, undoubtedly a messianic psalm. There's not any controversy about that. Verse 18, it says, Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord that he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise. When peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. In verse 22 it says, Peoples which means people groups, which is a picture of God uniting the world under the headship of His King. And all of these people groups are going to worship the true and living God who is reigning in Zion, a.k.a. Jerusalem. This is God's plan for His Messiah. And notice, it is a global plan. It is not just that He is going to rule over Israel, like he's going to be a better king than David. That's true. But he's going to rule over the nations. And I can give you two dozen more examples in the Psalms, but we'll move on to the prophets. The most prolific writer of this is Isaiah. Isaiah writes about the Messiah more than any other. We'll start with one that you're familiar with, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Messianic, he says, For for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So notice in verse 6, it says a child is born. There's an indicator that this is going to be a human being, fully man. But he is also called the mighty God. So this is talking about the God-man. 
And what is the God-man going to do? He is going to usher in world peace. He is going to rule the world in righteousness. He will have a throne and he will have sovereignty over all kingdoms and over all governments. Isaiah 35, he's describing the future restoration of all things. Jumping in verse 3, he says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Now imagine you're the disciples and what does Jesus come to do? He's healing the blind. He's giving deaf people the ability to hear he's making the mute speak he's making the lame leap for joy and they're thinking this is happening now in our midst couple verses later in verse 10 it says and the ransomed of the lord shall return and come to zion where's zion somebody tell me jerusalem with singing Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So these are very well-known messianic passages. He's going to come. He's going to heal. He's going to bring righteousness. And he's going to establish his throne in Jerusalem. And there are the twelve. And they get to be there for this. It's going to happen any time now. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And we're going with him. Give you one more from Isaiah. I could give you 30 more from Isaiah. I'm going to give you one more. Isaiah 42 verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Now, I find Isaiah to be very tricky to interpret because what Isaiah does more than the other prophets is this thing called telescoping. So Isaiah will talk about near events and far events And he doesn't have any sort of separation between those two. So you're reading him and he's flowing and talking as if it's one big thing that's all going to happen. 
And yet, there's actually hundreds and even thousands of years that separate these verses from these verses. So Isaiah can be challenging because he's talking about the earthly ministry of Jesus and then he's talking about the final consummation of all things and you don't know that there's a break there. So Isaiah, like I said, he's got lots to say about this, but I'll just give you a taste of some other prophets. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That's a messianic title, by the way. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, did Judah or Israel dwell securely in their history? Solomon's reign was probably the most prosperity they ever saw, but they were dominated by one Gentile nation after another. So this is an end times picture of what they can expect when this king is going to come. How about Daniel? Verses, uh, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, messianic title, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, that's people groups, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, back to our text in Luke, how is Jesus referring to Himself? Son of man, Son of man, Son of man. So, this has got to be setting off little bells in their thinking. This is the kingdom He's going to set up that's never going to pass away. It's all going to come to pass right now or Joel Joel chapter 3 verse 1 for behold in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem and then he talks about judgment he talks about future reign just to summarize because I'm going to skip down to verse 16 the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Now, for a first century Jewish people, the idea that strangers, Gentile reference there, 
are never going to pass through their holy city, Jerusalem, which is currently being trampled on by these Roman soldiers everywhere they look. This is a, this is a word of hope and promise, and they can't wait for that day to come. Never again will the Romans step foot on their land. Never again will they desecrate their holy city. The prophets said it themselves. Or how about Micah? Micah chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." Verse 3, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They're going to take their weapons of war and turn them into gardening utensils. In other words, paradise restored. So, their thinking is the one who has come to bring peace on earth is here in the midst of us and we are going to the city and this is what's happening next on God's timetable. Which is why, when they do enter Jerusalem, spoiler alert here, Jumping forward to Luke 19, the people are saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Man, they must have been going nuts, the twelve disciples. It's finally happening. I can't believe it. So this is the, this is the grand event in their minds. We've got the prophets. Jesus said everything that the prophets spoke of is going to be fulfilled. This is going to happen. They've got front row seats. They're going to see it. But back to our text. Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. But he doesn't say, and from there I will reign over the earth and bring in global peace. Instead, he says, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. I mean, Jesus is giving them the details here. And then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and their response is, come again? 
They don't have a category for what he's saying. Delivered over, Gentiles, shamefully treated, killed, rise again. This sounds like a totally different story. But it is the same story. They're only seeing a portion of that story because there is a bigger story that God is telling also through the prophets. And the part that they're missing is that it was necessary that Jesus lay down His life as the sacrificial lamb because if He does not, the people will never be made clean. And if a king is going to rule and reign over guilty nations, that is a fearful thing. And that is not a paradise. But if Jesus is going to rule and reign over nations who are made righteous by God, then you will truly have global peace. So how could there be so much incongruity between what the disciples are thinking and what Jesus describes here? How could their expectations be so far off? Well, the truth of the matter is that Scripture reveals both of these messianic realities. The Jews emphasize the passages where the Messiah is going to reign and put their Gentile enemies under their feet, but they were never sure what to do with the passages about the Messiah who's going to come and suffer. In fact, even to this day, there are chapters that the Jews do not read in their synagogues because it sounds so much like Jesus Christ whom they refuse. But let's wander back through the Psalms and the prophets once more and see if there's some things that we missed. <clears throat> the first one is Psalm 22. This is a psalm you really need to know because Jesus quotes the first verse of this psalm when He is on the cross. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Skip down to verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. That sound familiar? Verse 14, this is a first-person description of the crucifixion. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, 
and for my clothing they cast lots. Now this is written by David a thousand years before Christ. And this is a this is a messianic description of the suffering servant. Jesus makes the connection on the cross. It's hard to imagine the way that David is describing this, that this is something that actually happened to him. But this suffering is necessary because as you go later in the psalm, and it's a long one, it ends with this future kingly reign where there's peace on earth. But how are you going to have peace on earth if you don't first have atonement? This is the same psalm down to verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. So you've got those wonderful messianic prophecies about Him reigning but all of that that comes before it is about his suffering. Or if we look again at Isaiah. I had Richard read the whole chapter. I'm going to read the whole chapter again. If you don't know Isaiah 53, you need to know this chapter. It's very important. Isaiah 53.1 He says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Just side note real quick. Why, when they always do depictions of Jesus, do they make him handsome? It says right here, there's nothing about his appearance that you would look at him and say, wow, that guy really stands out. No beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth meaning he wasn't putting up a defense for himself. He wasn't trying to get off the hook. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. 
And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, crucified with the thieves, with a rich man in his death, buried in a rich man's tomb. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So this describes God's substitute for sinners. This describes the Savior that will come into the world who will not only stand in the place of sinners as their representative, but He becomes their great high priest who is also their mediator, their intercessor. So the, the, the idea of a future king who is going to bring in a world of righteousness could only be a reality if somehow the guilty nations are made righteous. And they are made righteous under this king, Jesus. Or we could look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. This is God speaking. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. A couple verses later, chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. <clears throat> so, it, if you think about the entire Old Testament, it is about man's separation from God and God remedying that separation by providing atonement. So, you read through the Old Testament, this is what it's about. God and man are not in a good place. God provides atonement for them going all the way back to Adam and through the Torah and through the prophets and all the rest. And yet, the picture was not that there's going to be generation after generation of perpetual priests 
and thousands and millions even of sacrificed animals, and this would go on and on eternally, but that there would be a once-for-all Redeemer who was going to atone for God's people, not so that we would have to do these sacrifices over and over our entire existence, but that God once and for all would remedy the problem in this Savior. And that is what the prophets are talking about here. But this was nowhere in the thinking of the disciples. Nowhere. And so in verse 34, Jesus just describes all the things that's going to happen. In verse 34, back in Luke, he says, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. He says they didn't understand three times in three different ways. (laughs) They understood none of these things. That's the first time. The saying was hidden from them. That's the second time. And they did not grasp what was said. In other words, they did not get it. It's also true that Jesus told them about this three times. And three times their response is the same. They didn't have a category for this. This was nowhere in their thinking whatsoever. They were prepared to reign with Jesus. That was the plan in their mind. They were not prepared to suffer with Him. Now the subtitle to my sermon is Tragedy or Triumph in Jerusalem which was meant to communicate that one aspect of the messianic expectation was triumph, and the other aspect of this messianic expectation we could call tragedy. The unjust suffering and death of the Holy One. But it's really an inaccurate title. Because even in His suffering and death, there is triumph. So tragedy from a human level, but what God has done in Christ for you is triumph. Triumph is not just that someday He's going to reign and rule the nations from Jerusalem, but the triumph is what Jesus did in His suffering and misery and death. The triumph is that Jesus has defeated sin and death once and for all, which is our greatest enemy, and that because He has died and risen, we are made righteous by His sacrifice, and we are given eternal life that we have not earned and that we do not deserve. And because He has conquered death, He promises that all who are joined to Him by faith, will also conquer death. Through His death, the works of the devil are defeated. The guilty ones are declared righteous. And so rather than it being a tragedy, it is all triumph all the way through. And aren't you so glad? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your plan to save the world was so 
astonishing and so incredible and so unlike anything that the natural man could have conceived of that it is obvious that the words that we've been given are divine and not of human origin. That this is a plan that you have established before the creation of the world. The suffering Lamb who would die in place of sinners. That all who come to Him by faith will be redeemed and will inherit a global world of peace and prosperity and joy unspeakable. And so, Lord, thank You for what You've accomplished. Thank You that You have given us righteousness. And thank You that You are coming again so that we can experience this in its fullness. In Jesus' name, Amen.